0: So we're in that section of Scripture, um, mark 933 through chapter 10, verse 52. We have looked at distinguishing marks of Jesus marks of Jesus' disciples. Um, so let's name them. What are they? If you have your notes, you should be able to find it really easily. All right. Chuck. Okay, one is they seek greatness. How do they seek greatness? Become a servant. Disciples of Jesus must be inclusive, not exclusive. All right, if you're for Jesus, we're with, we're together. They have to deal with sin. What do we see there? Dealing with sin in what ways? Two ways. Ruthless on their own sin. And be careful that we don't lead others to sin, okay? Um, Caleb's mentioned childlike faith. All right, now we're on the seventh. Oh, one that I forgot to mention already, marital fidelity. Disciples of Jesus should be known for marital fidelity, okay? Um, Now, again, let me just say something there. Do I think there are exceptions to um, lifelong marriage, and I believe yes, I believe there are two there are unrepentant adultery and abandonment, okay I get that, but in a world in which marital fidelity is really, really rare, um, when I look at my kids schoolmates and now my grandchildren 's schoolmates it 's amazing how many of those how many of their those children um, most by the way are characterized by broken homes. When I was a kid, that was very rare. Extraordinarily rare. Now it's more common than it is rare. Okay? All right. Disciples of Jesus must serve. Chapter 10, verse 32 through 52. All right, now I think that all of this is of a whole. That the whole section here is dealing with the idea of of service, Mark 10, 32 through 52, all right? Um, okay, let me find it here. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And talking, And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. um, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried cried out all the more, Son of David! Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang and came to Jesus. Came to Jesus, And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me cover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. All right. Now, um, I want you to notice that the death of Jesus connects what appears like two sections into one. Okay? Um, We have to become servants like Jesus, and we have to serve just as Jesus served in and by his death. Okay? Um, So it begins again with Jesus talking about his death. He describes his betrayal and condemnation, his handing over, his mocking, his death, his resurrection, all of that. And they have to understand, or at least be prepared to understand, the nature of his kingship. It's one of death and humiliation with ultimate triumph. Now again, we saw this at the beginning of this section, right? That Jesus was talking about this. And yet, the disciples don't get it. The disciples don't get it, so... Because James and John start asking, "Can, can you give us the, the, seats of honor, in your in your glory?" Okay, all they see, all they see is glory, right? It's almost as if they don't get it. And of course, Jesus says these are prepared for people, but they can't ask for it. Um. And then the other disciples protest. Now, here's the thing to remember. The, the other disciples are indignant not because they understand that, um, not because they understand James and John, don't you understand we're supposed to be servants? We're indignant with you. They're indignant because James and John got the jump on them to ask for the great positions of glory. That's what they're mad about. They're mad about that they got to Jesus first, right? Now, I don't know about you, um, but when I worked in the factory and you wanted to move up, you had to bid on a, what they called bid on a job. That is, the job would be open, you'd go to your, your um, lead man, your foreman or whatever and say, I'm putting my name in for that job. That's what we called, in, in my day, we called it bidding on a job. Okay, That's what's going on here. They're ticked because they don't get to bid on the job. The other two got to Jesus first. Right? That's what they're mad about. They're not mad because they misunderstand what it's all about. James and John misunderstand it. They're angry because they want those positions. And those two got the jump on them. Matthew, the way Matthew tells it is James and John's mother asks them, right? You know, right? They really want those uh, positions. Um. And so Jesus has to teach them about the nature of greatness in the kingdom. All right? And what does he say? By the way, he doesn't say you don't exercise authority. Here's here's where some of us get confused. Um, Where Jesus says, you know that those who are considered rulers, I'm looking at verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Um, Again, he's not saying it's wrong to exercise authority because Jesus is exercising authority all the way through this book, right? What he means by this is they lord it over them and they tyrannize people. It's not just the exercise of authority. It's the tyrannical exercise of authority. It's the When I say jump, the only thing you say is how high, right? Don't, don't, you know, I'm the one in charge. I am the boss, okay? And so that's what he's referring to. He's not saying you should never exercise authority. He's saying don't be like the Gentiles are, where their rulers tyrannize people, and they think that greatness is found in the fact that i can tell people what to do and they'll do it without question okay i mean let's face it how many times have you heard people say um i don't know i'll just pick on marathon yeah my my son my son's working for marathon he has 200 people working under him right how many times do you hear people say you know my son is a janitor and he's got um, a thousand people over him right we don't we don't think that way and that's that's how jesus is getting us to think he's turning everything on its head you know what when you read the gospels you can't get over the fact that jesus is always turning things upside down from the way we normally think and here's one of them don't think you're great because you have authority and you have a bunch of people working under you and all that think of yourself as a slave the greatest is Um, the slave, okay? We've got to get that through our minds. Now again, let me just tease this out a little bit more. Um, See if you guys would like this kind of a boss. So let's say my son does have 200 people working under him. What should he be doing? You know what he should be doing? He should be doing his dead-level best to make all those people look good, right? He He ought to be trying to serve them In some way, he ought to be serving them, all right? And I think that's real important for us to understand. When we do have positions of authority, we only use our authority in one way, and that's to serve other people. Um, And I think that's a real challenge. You know, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, the greatest is a slave of all. As Jesus says here again, um, how can I be a slave to people? I've always got to be thinking that way. How can I be a slave to people? All right, any questions on that? Yes, Rebecca? Well, now, th- that's the next point. What Jesus is saying, let me show you the example of what service is all about. And it, he says, um, um, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's how Jesus serves us. Here's the model of serving others. Jesus dies for them. There's the model of service. Um, He says, stop thinking in terms of prominence for the king himself must die a humiliating death. He must serve you. And so you've got to be like him, Right? The greatness of the king lies in his death. Our greatness lies in our slavery. Does that make sense, dear? Yeah. The death of Jesus is the greatest act of service. I mean, what's Philippians 2? How does it describe it? Philippians 2, uh, 1 through 11. You glance at it and you tell me how how, uh, service is described here. Okay, Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Someone read it. Let's just have, one of you read it. Service described here. What does it look like? You Right. And the example given is Jesus who did what? He didn't look after his interests, but he looked after ours. And then he goes and describes it in graphic detail. He went from, you got to get this, we have to get this in our minds. He went from the highest place in the universe to the lowest place, the absolute lowest place. He went from the highest. Here he is, uh, the second person of the Trinity, receiving the worship of angels. All of that's going on, right? And then he comes and he, he becomes a servant and dies death, but not just any death, the death of the cross. He goes from the place of highest exaltation to the place of greatest humiliation. Now, I always want to say this because I don't think we get it. And that is, When someone died on a cross, do you realize they were hung up absolutely naked? you realize that Jesus was absolutely naked on the cross? That was part of the humiliation of it all, right? Not a stitch. And so he goes from the highest place to the absolute lowest place. I mean, Paul is trying to get us to see. Highest to lowest. Why? Because he's come to serve us, right? He's come to serve us. And so here, Jesus says, here is how you become the slave of all. This is what I did. I died to pay a ransom. And so I am serving. I am the slave. I am the one who's looking out for others' interests, right? By the way, in Philippians, he says, that's the way you ought to be. That's the example you have in Jesus, okay? Um, so, So what we have to see here is that Jesus will serve his people by ransoming them from their guilt, um, ransoming them from sin itself. There's the greatest act of service the world will ever see, right? So he's saying, that's you gotta be the slave. Look at me, this is what I did. That's what you need to be like. And, and Paul does that in Philippians. That's the way Jesus was, that's the way you need to be, okay? Um, now, here's the thing. Then we go to Jesus healing Bartimaeus, Right? And I think that's still part of what he's talking about. I think what he's giving us here is a real life example of serving others. How does Bartimaeus address Jesus? Do you notice that? How does he address him? Look at Son of David. Now, that's there on purpose, right? What does Son of David mean? What does Son of David mean? Yeah, the Christ, the king, the Messiah. He recognized Jesus as the king, okay? And the people seek to silence him because in their view, Jesus is such an important person. But notice here, now here's the point. The king hears the pleas of a beggar. And what does he do? He serves him. You see that? Jesus just got done telling his disciples about it, what it's like, and now he shows them, okay? Jesus' greatness comes not in his position, but in serving a beggar, all right? Here's a real-life example of what Jesus is talking about. Again, someone with authority, but using that for someone else, okay? Now, um, that's when, that's when we have to look at ourselves and say, are we, are we getting that message, right? Are we getting that message? Um, Jesus wants us to see that the sign of greatness is that we are a slave of all. Um, and maybe I camp on this too much. To me, this has been one of the most significant commands of Jesus in my life, at least um, the one I think about the most. I'm here to serve. That's what I have to do. And the great greatness is found in serving others. By the way, I'd, I'd, uh, a pastor who had great influence on me uh, asked this question, how do you know if you're a servant? So how do you know if you're a servant? Answer, how do you act when people treat you like one? Right? when people don't recognize all the great things you're doing, when people don't give you applause. In fact, when people say, um, ignore you and what you're doing, how do you react when people treat you like a servant? All right? That, I think, is really helpful. It's really helpful to me, at least. Okay, questions on this. All right, we need to learn what Jesus says are distinguishing marks of disciples. Otherwise, we'll put all our own stuff in there, all right? We'll put our own, all our own criteria in rather than what Jesus does. And so we need to learn and practice them so we don't devise our own distinguishing marks. Okay? Yes, Caleb? Caleb? It does. And, um, and so I was just curious: is that is that just a symbol of humiliation, meaning like leaving aside that is to go to Jesus, or am I misreading? No. Well, I'm saying you're not misreading it because it struck me too. <laughs> and and actually, I'm not sure I'm not sure what to say about that because as I read it before and as i read it this morning i thought he's making something about throwing off his cloak i wonder what that's all about and i don't have an answer for that well, we know often of of history, yeah like yeah he yeah yeah uh, you might be onto something there. I, I, in fact, as I was, we were traveling up here, I was thinking, I wish I would have looked into that a little more. <laughs> no, I think you're, because it's mentioned. And, and here's the thing when you see details like that, um, follow up on that, follow up on that, because it's there. And, and when, okay, remember when we talked about the Bible as literature? Like, um, have you ever gone to a movie, and it's real preachy, right? Have you ever gone to a movie that's, whether it's a Christian movie or another one, that's either one can preach at you, and you say, I just don't enjoy that. That's just, just give me a sermon, right, instead of making a movie. But the the attraction of stories is that it brings us in and teaches us things without preaching, And that's what the Bible does. And so when details like that are there, there is something to it. I think, Caleb, I honestly think um, there is something there. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been mentioned. What's so so great about just throwing off your cloak? Right? If I'm running, I take my jacket off. But no one notices. No one mentions it. He mentions that. So it's got to be something. Okay, so Caleb, research it this week and come back with the answer next week. (laughs) okay (laughs) yes dear Anglican churches in england yeah yeah david suchet s u c h e t okay um, he he does a really good job of uh, we Becca found him and listened to him as he read through the whole book of Mark. He's a lot better reader than Caleb or I. He in, he usually plays Inspector Poirot or something. Okay. That shouldn't, oh, no. No, I didn't. Sharon did. I, she said five, and I said, no, I did that one six. You didn't throw those away. I, that's, we just got done with this one. <laughs> oh, you guys, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll have the, the right one for you next week. Well, I guess you'll just have to go on your own without my notes. Um, <coughs> oh. Well, <coughs> uh. the next section goes from chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12. Um. Yeah, all the way through the end. So 11 and 12 is the next section. And here you find who is Jesus and what does he reveal. You'll get this all next week when I bring the right notes, I hope. Uh, Jesus reveals his authority as Lord and teacher and at the same time reveals men's heart. So this section is all about revelation of Jesus and his authority as Lord and as teacher and it also is a section that reveals our hearts to us and this this first section to me is fascinating because it it has this um, it has this interesting thing with the fig tree, where Jesus curses a fig tree, and you and you're you're asking, what does this have to do with anything? I mean, I used to think that as a kid now as a kid, everybody because in matthew. Uh, It says something about this generation will not pass before, you know, I forget how it goes. I had to look it up. But the cursing of the fig tree became this great big thing about eschatology. And it's not about that at all. And so the fig tree always fascinated me because in Mark, for example, Jesus comes along, curses the fig tree, goes and cleanses the temple and comes back. And the disciples say, hey, look, the tree, the tree's dead wow jesus you 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 it worked right so you have to wonder what that's all about um so let's at least jump into this a little bit. let's look at the first so this next section goes chapter eleven and chapter twelve. all right, let's read one through eleven here yeah yep, yep, there's one. And in 11, 12, and then the other, it ends in, in 20, uh, 20 through 26. So there's an inclusio there, right? The fig tree is the inclusio, right? And what's in between? What's in between that inclusio? Remember what inclusio is. An inclusio is bookends and everything in between is colored by the bookends. What's in between the cursing of the fig tree and the death of the fig tree? What's in between that? Yeah. So it's, a, it's going to be something to do with the cleansing of the temple. Okay? Um, so we're not there quite yet. Well... All right, let's read the first 11 verses, okay? Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of... Okay, so pay attention, because we, when we come back next week, we don't have to read this all over again, okay? Because we'll keep going. At the Mount of Olives, at, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, it will find, you will find a colt tied the revelation of Jesus comes to us not only in words, but it comes to us in actions, all right? So Jesus is revealing things not merely by his words, but by his actions. And so we find both of those operating in this section of 11 and 12, okay? Now, the first thing I, from 11, 11 and 12, we get um, 11, 1 through twelve twelve. We see Jesus revealing his authority as Lord. How does Jesus reveal his authority here? From in the first 11 verses. How do you think he's revealing his authority? You've heard enough Palm Sunday sermons, haven't you? Comes in on a donkey. And what does everybody say in response? What do they say? You can look at your Bibles if you want and tell me. What? Hosanna to whom? Yeah. They recognize this as a revelation of the son of David. Now, Jesus could have walked into Jerusalem. In fact, he had walked all the way from Galilee. And all of a sudden, he gets this donkey. He deliberately chooses to enter the city sitting on a donkey. He sends his disciples to get the colt so that no one would think he was being called a king against his own wishes. And he has this deliberate act of self-disclosure for those with eyes to see. And he presents himself as the king who comes in peace. Now, I don't know about you, right? Uh, You guys are all younger except for Bob and Andre maybe, but um, you all remember growing up and watching Westerns? Right. So when we were kids, we grew up. Not only were they in the movie, well, we couldn't go to the movies until they came to television. But anyway, all the movies we would watch, and all, the, and there were tons of television programs. You know, there was um, two of them that were really famous. I never got to watch because I think we were at church. Bonanza and um, Gunsmoke. There was Dead or There was Dead or Alive. There was. Uh, Oh, I don't know. Wagon Train. There was all these things. Rawhide. Yeah. All these programs. Now let me ask you this. If if you've watched any westerns, how many of the cowboys ride donkeys? None. You got it, Gabe. No one. Why? For us, that is so uncool. You don't ride donkeys you ride steeds you ride horses but donkeys that is just so uncool by the way just kind of a note they did ride a lot of donkeys in the west they did actually because they're really good animals for that but nevertheless we never saw donkeys that was so uncool and so as a kid I would read this and think yeah that's really weird but it's not weird if you lived back then Here's the deal. A king would come on a stallion when he was going to war. A king would come on a donkey when it was peace. So he's revealing himself here as the king of peace, the prince of peace, as the king who comes in peace. All right? They did not consider a king on a donkey as something undignified. They did not think that way. When a king rode a donkey, he came in peace. So here is Jesus Coming as a king of peace. He doesn't ride a stallion. He doesn't come with fearful pomp and power. He does not arrive to terrify his people. He arrives as one who is peace. And they recognize immediately. They immediately recognize him as king. Part of this is because in Zechariah, it says that the king is going to arrive in this way. And The prophet Zechariah says this. So pilgrims are coming from all over the world. They're coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus and his disciples coming from Galilee are traveling with this whole group of pilgrims. So you got to see Jesus now. Jesus and his disciples. Okay, so here's another thing. We kind of see Jesus and his disciples walking around about probably four feet off the ground. There goes Jesus, right? No, he wouldn't look any different than anybody else. And so he and his disciples are in this huge crowd of pilgrims walking from Galilee, all right? And as they come over the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem, um, well, before that, he comes and gets this donkey, and he, he, he rides it through the Kidron Valley, and these, these crowds reach this fever messianic pitch right, of, of incredible enthusiasm, and they give Jesus what's called the red carpet treatment. Now, you know what the red carpet treatment is. I remember one time I flew in, we were flying into uh, Romania, I think it was about the first time I went to Romania, went to Romania, and you could look out the plane of our windows and there was uh, this huge red carpet laid out, um, of course, it wasn't for us. It was for someone else who was going to arrive. But you all know what the red carpet treatment is. The red carpet laid out means this is an incredible dignitary. This is someone that we're going to pay a lot of honor to. So when the president or a leader of a nation goes somewhere, they have a red carpet laid out for them. That's what's going on here. All the branches and laying out all the cloaks is what is what they would call or what we would call the red carpet treatment. Okay. What, what they give to dignitaries, what they give to leaders. And they're shouting uh, praises to God, and it becomes evident what they're thinking. The promised king has arrived. Praise God, right? The promised king has arrived. Uh, they knew that. They knew that, and they, they expressed that, okay? Um, so here's one way he reveals his authority. He comes riding on a donkey. And there's little things there, like when they go get the donkey, um, they say, hey, what are you doing? I say, Jesus needs it. Oh, okay, right? Um, So they know this is the king arriving. Jesus reveals himself and his authority as king as he comes to Jerusalem, okay? And next week we'll pick it up in the next way that he shows his authority. And it's real important to see, all right, the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple all go together and they all say something that we need to hear if we're gonna understand what the cleansing of the temple is all about. Okay, and it's real important to see that. So um, he reveals his authority by cleansing the temple and, and all of this is gonna tell you why he's doing that. Why he's doing that. And let me just let you in on it. A little tantalizing bit. Jesus does not clear, clear the temple because they're selling things. That isn't the reason why he does it. Okay? You say, what? Got to come back next week to find out what that's all about. Okay? All right. Let's Let's uh, let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, just your word, just for revealing Jesus to us. We thank you that your word reveals Every bit of it reveals our Savior to us. Help us to have eyes to see him. Give us the faith to grasp him. Help us to live in light of his commandments and his example. In every way, Father, we thank you for Jesus, and uh, we want to exalt him today. Help us to do that in Jesus' name.